Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 144. This week, we talk with Keith Horwood about standard lib, nodal, and NT-seq. Stack Overflow releases their 2017 developer survey results. .NET all the things. And VS Code uses 13% CPU to render the blinking cursor. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Aspose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DOCX, XSLX, PPT, PDF, MSG, MPP, image formats, and many more. This week we have Keith Horwood, founder of Standard Lib and author of the API framework Nodal. How's it going, Keith? Hey, uh, not too bad. Uh, happy to be here. Perfect, perfect. And uh, Carl, looks like you have some kind of gear update. What did you get? Yeah, so uh, you know we we've talked at length about how or at home I have a standing desk, and I've got the Ergotron arms holding up my monitors. And while it's really nice to have these Ergotron arms because you know I can move my monitors at will and they kind of just stay there. You know, one of the things I never was quite happy with is they never kind of got high enough for me. Uh, so I was kind of like digging around on their web page, maybe seeing like, maybe I bought the wrong thing. And I noticed that if you have a single monitor, they have like this tall mount. Uh, however, they didn't have that for the dual arms. So I contacted their uh, customer service line and they had mentioned that they actually make these plates that extend the vase amount on the back that mm-hmm. hooks up to the arms. So it's, it's just a steel plate with the holes cut in the right places, but it moves it either four or six inches up. Okay. So I bought these uh, little plates and we'll have a link in the show notes if this is something you want, but this moves the monitors up uh, for me. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty tall uh, guy. I'm six foot two. So uh, it moves them up. And now I'm absolutely loving my standing desk, you know, two to three times as much as I was before. It really makes a huge di- uh, difference having my desk a little bit lower and my monitors much higher. Okay, perfect. That's great. So if you're in that situation too, just check out the show notes and uh, check out the mounts. They're pretty cheap. Okay. Very cool. Well, yeah. I mean, if it's just a piece of metal with some holes that are in the correct locations, but I think it's pretty expensive too. inexpensive, right? Yeah. It was a little bit more than I wanted to pay. I think oh. it was like 20 bucks. Yeah. 20 bucks. But yeah. I mean, that seems about right. They got to make some money, but, but it's worth it. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and then I have a bit of a gear update. So um, if you heard me on previous episodes, I talked about how the uh, AT&T iPhone 7 Plus uh, was junk, the the wireless chip in there. It was was absolute junk. Um, I finally took matters into my own hands um, and spent a ridiculous amount of money to replace my brand new phone with another brand new phone. But this time it's the essentially the Verizon model, which has the Qualcomm chip. So I'm using the Verizon iPhone now with AT&T. No Bluetooth issues whatsoever. Um, and, um, supposedly this thing has like better 30% better LTE speeds. I don't, I think that Apple, uh, cranked that down though. They actually underclock the, the Qualcomm chip, uh, to make them even, but anyway, I have the good model now. So my, my oldest son has a ridiculously overpriced phone compared to his, uh, <laughs> his peers. But, um, I, it's a kind of a long story why I had to keep that other one. You know, AT&T basically gave it to me for free, but, um, you know, they, they have me, um, in their clutches at this point. Um, so I had to drop a whole bunch of money. So now Apple's trying to, uh, pay me off because of all the hassle that I went through. So they're actually sending me a free, uh, like a $300 Bluetooth, uh, speaker because of how much hassle I had with this whole issue. So the moral of the story is, and I think this is what I've said on the show before, if 
if you are getting an iPhone 7 Plus, buy the Qualcomm model, which is the, I think it's this A1660 or the A1661, and you will not have this issue. That phone is superior in every way and works with every carrier. If you buy the 1774 or the 1778, you are only locked into like AT&T and T-Mobile and you have a horrible wireless chip and they're all the same price. So, you know, the more, you know, um, so I'm done talking about that issue because it's completely <laughs> gone now. <laughs> it's a boat time. <clears throat> yeah. So what do we have for the comment of the week, Carl? Uh, this week, the comment of the week gets a developer small business license for Exposed Total for .NET, which includes all of the Exposed.NET products in one package. And it goes out to uh, John McBride on Twitter. He said, nice poster of what's new in VS 2017. Thanks to Jason Carl and Amanda Silver for the heads up. Mm-hmm. And this was in response to last week's episode when we talked about what's new in Visual Studio 2017. And we had Amanda Silver on. And that was a pretty fun episode, I think. Yep. I'm trying to get my hands on some hard copies. I don't I don't know if oh, they exist. Nice. Yeah, but I'm trying to get some uh, so that I can. You should try to hit up the uh, Visual Studio team. See what the. I, I did. You would I think did. they would. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I did. I, I might have to go invade their building and just look for them. <laughs> they probably have they probably have a whole stack of them somewhere. So if you want to get mentioned on the show like John, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We really like those five-star iTunes reviews. Okay, so let's jump into the news. We got some cool, we got some really cool stories this week. Um, so the first one here is enhanced open source license descriptions and metadata. You want to explain this one, Carl? Yeah, so in the past, uh, GitHub has been making it easier and easier for us to add license information to our GitHub repos. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you start a new one, it recommends that uh, that you enter a, a, a little UI that will enter a, a license file for you. Or if you just do like a license with no extension or license.md, um, it'll autofill, give you a few options for you to pick from. And uh, what they do now is when you're viewing these licenses for other people, it gives you a very short but uh, easy to read English description of what this license does and does not mean. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if you go to our repo for our website, which we keep out there on GitHub open for everybody to see, uh, you'll see that we have an MIT license and it says a short and simple permissive license with conditions only requiring uh, preservation of copyright and, and license notices, license work, modifications and larger works may be distributed under different terms and without source. And then they got some color coded options uh, that just says one or two words that is commercial use modification, distribution, private use, so on and so forth. But it makes it really clear what it does and does not give you at a glance. Mm -hmm. So if you're not sure when you're picking a license or you're looking at somebody's repo that you want to fork, um, this makes it a little bit easier for you to make that decision in a little more educated way. Absolutely. I encourage you to get a license on your projects. And now there's no excuses. Now it's pretty easy to understand these things. Um, More from GitHub. GitHub contribution mug. Are you going to get one of these, Carl? I you already got did. One. <laughs> so, so the big thing that the reason why I got one is it's identical to our <laughs> MS Dev Show mug, except for the picture on it. Yeah, it's the same size, just a different color, same style. So, if you like our mug, and you know you don't want all of your mugs to say MS Dev Show, you can order the GitHub uh, mug, uh, which is which is very cool. Fourteen dollars, right, Carl? Yes. And there's their shipping. If I you assume? get yeah, there's some shipping okay. too. But if you have an, a GitHub mug and you want one of ours, hit up Jason or I. We've got some. Yeah. And if you work at Microsoft, just come over to my office. I got a whole bunch of them here. <laughs> just raid his desk when he's well, looking. In in the past we've 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 tried to like get them to people and get other swag to people and I'm I turns out I'm very unreliable. So it's better <laughs> if you just show up here and uh, and then I can just give you stuff. Um so I have a question about the yeah. uh, the the GitHub mug actually. So is this just a 
generic design that they have yeah, matching contributions. It's not personalized at all. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so, that was my so question uh, for the show. It looks like your contribution line, but it is, it is not yours. It's just the same for everybody I just know. so they could spell out GitHub and the nice dark dots. I think the uh, logistics yeah. of customizing them would be too crazy, but that that's what I thought it was initially. And I, I, so I asked Carl about it and then I was pretty bummed out as well. Um, cause it's just, now it's just a generic design. Everybody's looks the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, it still looks cool, but that's, yeah. uh, that would have been really neat if you could get your own. Cause you, yeah. you guys have seen all the crazy stuff people have done, like the hacks they've done on their contribution history, um, to spell things out. And, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Well, then that could be bad too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, with all like the computer connected printers in that, you'd think that they could do it. So come on, GitHub, let's, uh, let's, let's allow people to customize these. Or if they don't have any activity, then you can just buy the standard one. It makes it look like you did a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, totally, it's totally my last year of, of contributions here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Google app engine adds .NET support, love .NET, um, as it races to be the paths of choice. Yeah, so obviously Amazon and Azure are the number one and two clouds by a long shot, mm-hmm. but uh, Google is doing what it can to catch up, especially in the PaaS area. Uh, the one uh, little caveat with it, um, as you read this article, is it's .NET Core only. So if you were looking to do like a .NET standard MVC application that you want to host it in the Google Cloud, uh, you're out of luck. But if you are looking at doing something with .NET Core, um, Google could be another option for you. Definitely gives a little bit more competitor in the cloud area. Yeah, I I do want to look at this. I don't. What I don't understand is, um, you know, kind of how they deploy it. Like I figured it was it was .NET Core the the second that I saw it. Um, mm-hmm. But how are they? You know, the nice thing about the the Google Compute Engine is that they it's supposedly infinitely scalable and they they handle pretty much everything for you, which is which is great. Uh, but in a language like this, um, I'm not sure how. You know, like if you store something like a static variable, for example, I'm guessing like in the next request that might not be there <laughs> um, because obviously that would, would limit the scale. So I'm not sure how they they manage state and do that type of thing or if it's really just uh, um, like you know, something like Azure Functions uh, on, on steroids um, or like a standard lib that we're going to be talking about here in a little bit. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so I'm kinda, it's the, the whole differentiation is becoming a little cloudy to me. So I need to, no pun intended. So I need to, I want to look at this and I want to, I want to see how they're, how they're doing that. Um, and, and then at first I thought maybe they were just running like uh, their Kubernetes platform and they were just running a whole bunch of containers. But then I found some pages that were talking about like, you know, compute engine versus Kubernetes. So this is a, this is a homework item for me to figure out what the, you know, what the difference is in the, in the architecture and how they're pulling this off and, and what the limitations are is really what it comes down to. But, you know, I'm super happy that they're adding .NET support. And I think that's, I think that's the power of .NET Core, right? It runs anywhere. Um, so now we're seeing it run everywhere. Any other comments on that? Um, well, uh, regarding like Google Compute Engine, they, yeah. uh, I mean, they also have Google Cloud Functions, which I think um, just a yeah. couple of weeks ago, they, they just announced is uh, officially in public. Public beta, I believe. Um, so yeah, I mean, figuring out the delineation there of like Compute Engine um, versus Google Cloud Functions and how they're really going to differentiate those yep. is, is going to be interesting to see moving forward. So. Yeah, and then also versus containers, right? Yeah. Because um, I looked, I watched their little video and like their Visual Studio experience and it, and it kind of looks like they're spitting out a container and then you put it up there. But if it's just containers, then why wouldn't I use Kubernetes 
I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> there's, there's too many options now. They're, they're all kind of, they're all kind of blurring together. And maybe that is the point is that they're, they're all like super similar and, and there's not a major difference in, in how we're achieving the scale now. Yeah. I, I mean, I think everything in terms of developer experience anyway, I mean, you're, you're going to hear about different technology stacks in the back end, but at the, at the end, it's all just going to be provisioned containers, right? So it, the convergence is just all going to be around developer experience. Um, and actually getting, I mean, you're never going to have like a no ops workflow, but Mm -hmm. heading towards that dream of like, just like I wrote my function or I wrote my software. It just works. I never need to think about this again. Um, my job is done for the day and I'm not going to get a phone call on, on Saturday or Mm -hmm. a a page on Saturday telling me to everything's on fire. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So. Yeah, we're in that noisy phase right now. You know, we're in the pain. We're in kind of the pain period where we can we can see what we're headed toward, and we're just waiting for it. You know, this this point where you can you know just open up like Visual Studio, and then you say like you know run over here, and 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 you don't have to worry about scale and those other things. Um, and you know, there's there's ways, there's there's tricks to doing that. But um, yeah, I think I think we'll just kind of look back then at the at the previous era and be like, oh my god, I, that was such a hassle having to to manage all these things. <laughs> Managing yeah, things is not fun. It might it might take a while. I mean, I I do think there is um, a certain hesitance or reluctance of. I mean, as software developers and as engineers, we like to have a really good understanding of how everything works, right? So like we can stack trace all of our all of our errors. Um, and so I think there is that sort of limited amount of like, well, we have to give up a little bit of control here. But I mean, just with the success of like Azure and AWS generally, I think people are in the industry are just a lot more comfortable, period, giving up that control. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think piece by piece, we're going to end up giving up <laughs> more and more <laughs> of that control, but be okay with it. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, Stack Overflow developer survey results 2017. So we talk about this every year because this is al- always super insightful. So what what are you getting out of this, Carl? Uh, the pieces that really kind of jumped out at me, they, did, they had a whole section on remote workers mm-hmm. and how often people work remotely, job satisfaction on remote workers. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I found kind of interesting is uh, according to this survey, at least uh, that they did, um, only 31% of developers never work remotely. That means uh, the other uh, 68.2% work remotely at least one day a month or more. And 11% of that is full-time. And I think that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a lot higher than I would have guessed. Yeah, there were there were some things in here that I wanted to. Oh, here we go. Um, one of the things here too that I that I really liked was the most loved, dreaded, and wanted language languages. This was pretty good. Uh, loved. I'll just go like top three. Most loved Rust, Smalltalk, and then TypeScript. TypeScript actually, you know, it so it made the top three, which is uh, which is incredible. And 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 it's funny because yeah, whenever I find other TypeScript people, that it's always the same, the same amount of love. So I can understand where that's coming from. Uh, the three most dreaded. Um, I'll actually give you four. Yeah, oh man, this is dangerous. I'll give you four because the first two are really similar. Number one, Visual Basic six. <laughs> uh, number two, VBA, <laughs> and that's why I'm kind of counting those as sort of the same thing. Number three, uh, Coffee Script, which I can understand. It's funny, like, but people went to that because they liked it. Uh, but yeah, it's one of those things where I dread seeing it because it's just weird to me. Number four is uh, VB.net. Um, and actually pretty close up there. <laughs> Objective C is more dreaded than assembly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, that's not where you want to be. Um, and then most wanted, 
Um, and I can actually, the number one is one that I actually want, which is Python. Uh, so we got Python, then JavaScript, then Go, and then uh, C++. How did Java make that list? <laughs> um, <laughs> but Python is number one, yeah. It, it's it's funny because I um, Python's been around forever, and, and I remember seeing it. I'm like, okay, I don't need to learn that. I'll just wait 20 years and it'll go away and like it's stronger <laughs> it's stronger than ever so i feel like yeah. i feel like it has staying power now and I, I i feel like i have to learn it because the array functions in there are absolutely um awesome um and w- one other thing i thought was interesting so they ha- also had a love dreaded and wanted list for frameworks libraries and other technologies oh, yeah, yeah. yep and net core was in each category yeah Oh, it was in what? It was both loved, dreaded, and wanted. <laughs> Actually, so across the board, I, I won't go through all the lists where it, it was in there, but .NET Core made significant appearances in these lists. I mean, it is, it's like infiltrated everything like overnight. It's pretty amazing. Um, top paying technologies by region. I'm sure everybody wants to know this. So I'm going to, uh, sorry, I'm going to be US centric here, but in the US, number one is Go, then Scala, then Objective-C. Than coffee script. It's all the things that people don't like, <laughs> except for go and scale, I suppose. If but, you don't want to do it, we'll pay you to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. If you if you just want to hate yourself at the end of the, every day, um, what else do we have here? Um, let's see here. Correlated te- technologies is kind of obvious. Web developers tend to use JavaScript, SQL, C sharp. Desktop developers use SQL, JavaScript, C. Oh, well, that's funny. It's just in a slightly different order. Um. <laughs> Anything else? Popular programming languages: JavaScript, SQL, Java, C sharp. Um, well, the the one thing I think is is always kind of interesting is comparing this one. I forgot who does the other survey, but there's mm-hmm. that big survey that that's done every month of most used languages. Right. And on that one, Java is like clearly heads and bounds ahead of everybody else by like several factors. But mm-hmm. here, Java and C sharp are actually fairly close. Yep. So it's seeing that even though it's slightly ahead here and way ahead in the other one, um, that, you know, it depends upon which audiences you measure and how you measure them. Mm-hmm. The other one's kind of cool here is uh, years coding professionally. It seems to be um, this sort of aligns with um, uh, Uncle Bob Martin, what he talks about. I mean, the distribution is definitely on the lower side. I mean, he was always saying that, you know, half, you know, the, the, the number of, oh, I'm going to screw it up, but it's like the number of people coming into the industry is like equivalent to what's already in the industry. So you figure like half of the industry is like super inexperienced. Um, and, and this, this actually backs that up. I mean, if you look at less than seven years of experience, I mean, that seems to be like half of the, the distribution right there. Um, so I think this data kind of backs up what he's saying. And if you get into, um, you know, like how many years I've been doing this, um, there's not many people, (laughs) um, it, it gets really down. It's like single digit percentages at that point. Um, which is kind of interesting. So, so why do you, why do you think that is? Well, so, so the way he explained it, I mean, it's just, there's, there's more people. So let's pretend like nobody else got into the industry. I mean, we'd see that whole demographic shift uh, to to be older over time. Right. But what's happening is the number of people getting into the industry is actually increasing very quickly. Yeah. So it's, it's not a bad thing. It's just that we have an influx of, of new developers and they just, they shift the curve down. They, the, the, the bars that would normally be big, get, get shrunk down as, as you uh, put this influx in the beginning where these uh, developers only have, you know, one or two years of experience. There's tons of them coming in. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, lots of, uh, lots of brand new JavaScript developers too. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what I've been having my son learn. 
uh, is JavaScript. And, you know, people are like, what? That's crazy. And it's like, no, like it runs everywhere. You can do anything with JavaScript. If you could only learn one language in your entire lifetime, uh, programming language, um, a JavaScript is a decent option because you can build literally anything with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think what's cool too is because it literally just adopts <laughs> um, paradigms from other programming languages <laughs> as it sees fit, right? It's like, it's like, a, it's, well, it's like, yeah, it's almost like um, the, the comparison I make sometimes, and some people like um, kind of scoff at this, but the comparison I make is kind of like the English language. Yeah. Um, the English language has so many like, um, carrot, like, sorry, bring alongs, whatever, from other languages of people just like, hey, this is now like an English word because I'm just going to use it all the time. Mm-hmm. JavaScript kind of does that um, with programming paradigms and concepts. And like people, I mean, there are people who only do like use functional programming paradigms in JavaScript. And they're like, if you ever use the class syntax, like that is the new class syntax, like that, I don't even want that code anywhere near me. Then there are other people who are like, yeah, I just do um, all my object oriented code is like written in JavaScript. So it's, it's really cool that there are just all of these different um, opportunities and ways to write code um, with JavaScript. So yeah, your technological uniqueness will be added to our own. <laughs> um, I think that's all I wanted to call out in this. I mean, there's, it, it, I, I actually was looking at this for like 20 minutes and I realized I was only about halfway through it. So there's a lot of data in here, but I, I find it extremely interesting. So anything else you want to call out, Carl? We should move on. I think we should move on. Okay. Uh, there's a new feature in uh, Visual Studio Code. <laughs> uh, it, it uses 13% of your CPU when idle due to the blinking cursor rendering. So I guess, first of all, you know, I do work at Microsoft, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to defend this because I, you know, I have read what the cause is. So it's actually Chrome on, I think it's Chrome on windows is the issue. Um, there's a CSS property in the code that's making it like blink every 500 milliseconds. But for whatever reason, uh, Chrome is like waking up that thread every 16 milliseconds, I guess. So it's like burning a whole bunch of CPU cycles. I guess if you have VS code minimized, it doesn't happen. But when it, while it's open, um, it's actually using quite a bit of CPU power to render the blinking cursor. <laughs> um, I actually saw, did you, did you guys see the, the dramatic video? Maybe I'll splice it. I'll put that like at the end of the show on the video version. But there was a there was a guy who made a dramatic video um, showing this whenever he changes the cursor and and what happens. <laughs> no, but uh, oh, wow. there's a a Reddit thread about this where somebody like even goes and figures out how many people use VS Code and uh, how much extra energy this is wasting and how much extra carbon it puts in the atmosphere. Yeah. So there's somebody who took this a, a little bit too far. But, you know, it, it's just too, uh, you know, one thing I'd like to remind people is, you know, VS Code is an Electron app. Electron apps uh, in general have certain things that they they bring and carry with them. Like you said, the, the Chromium rendering engine being one of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, when there are, uh, it's nice because you get a lot of things for free, but you also bring along all that stuff and the bugs when um, you do find them. Yeah, the the YouTube video is two minutes long. I'll include it after the after the <laughs> after the sure. end of the show. Um, but yeah, he's just showing like the because there's six different cursor options in VS Code, um, and and he's got over seven thousand views in the comments. Uh, I like the part where the cursor blinked, <laughs> um, made me cry. <laughs> Another one. Why is there always one dude that has to dislike the video? <laughs> anyway, um, okay. Uh, is that all we had for news? 
Uh, this week it looks like it okay well let's get into let's let's get to talking to keith because that's that's really why we're here (laughs) and actually yeah so this kind of comes full circle because um you know we were talking about different ways to you know um just publish your code and not really think about what's what's going on there so i think we should start by defining serverless architecture um and and is there really no server or i think before the show you were talking about it taps into Elon Musk's brain or potentially the <laughs> the computer that's running the simulation that we're all part of. Um, so are those myths or is that reality? Uh, yeah, well, the truth is the universe is a simulation and serverless code just like runs in the ether and ah. just now. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well, I mean, I think the way that it's been best described to me, I mean, everybody just kind of jokes about this, um, is it just means it's like somebody else's cloud or somebody else's Kubernetes cluster um, is really where you're running code. I mean, serverless, yeah, the term is a misnomer. Um, I've had discussions with people like, we don't call cars horseless carriages. So yeah. like, is the term serverless really going to stick around for the future? Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously it's caught on in the industry. Everybody uses it to refer to this type of architecture. Um, I think function as a service just generally is how people are starting to like, it's okay. just on-demand functions. Um, I mean, really at the end of the day, it's just um, containers being um, spun up uh, on demand to handle functional uh, API requests. Mm. Um, that's really all it comes down to. And like the technologies that are running behind the scenes, whether it's like Azure Functions, Google Cloud Functions, or um, AWS Lambda. No, I don't work on any of these teams um, directly. But uh, yeah, as far as my understanding, it's the same basic idea of like lean containers that run Node or run Python or what have you um, that are just provisioned kind of at will. Um, so the the gain of serverless is just that like you can trust these big companies um, mm. to basically handle this automatic provisioning for you. Um, and so you don't have to worry about scale. Um, it, it changes the way that you have to think about building applications, especially in something like Node.js, because when Node came out, um, when, when Node first came out, I mean, the, the big win for Node was like the, the non-blocking asynchronous mm-hmm. I.O. Um, and it's like, okay, cool, now we can have one HTTP server just running a Node instance that can handle, I mean, 10,000 concurrent HTTP requests like simultaneously, right? Um, so the paradigm of serverless kind of changes that because now the state that you might have been saving in your, in your single Node.js instance that could, that could scale like the, at least vertically for one instance, um, you don't maintain state anymore. Um, so you can't, uh, you still got to kind of think about caching because there's a chance the same container could be hit two requests in a row. So you can still do things like caching, um, but it just requires a different approach. I, uh, I am actually kind of a huge fan of it because it comes back to like the whole point of like rest, restful endpoints and resources to begin with. Like HTTP mm-hmm. is a stateless protocol. So when we started getting into all this like real-time web and WebSocket stuff, we got away, like we almost started to, and like Node.js, we almost started to forget that this is all supposed to be a stateless protocol and very simple. Um, so it's kind of bringing us back around, right? I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, I mean, I've heard this, this comparison made, right? I mean, a few years, it wasn't even that long ago. It was like a few years ago, we were dragging and dropping PHP scripts um, into FTP. Yeah. And like then it's like, oh, your script just runs. I mean, that's really all that yeah. serverless. We're going back to those days, except instead of a PHP script, it's like essentially dragging and dropping a JavaScript file. And it's like, oh, yeah, your function just runs when it's hit. And everybody's like, wow, this is so amazing. And it is. It's amazing because we got so complex for this yeah. really short amount of time. And we're going back to that simplicity of like, really, oh, I could just upload a PHP script yeah. and it works, right? So that's my uh, that's my number one question that I always get on, on Azure Functions is like, does this store state for me? No, you have to externalize that. Yeah. Um, that was kind of interesting that you said that sometimes 
sometimes you you will like if you were to save it in memory for example sometimes you could access it um i've never seen that before i guess my my rule though is you know d- definitely don't count on that right oh yeah don't um don't count on it at all yeah. um so the the platform that i've worked the most in depth with um and that we built our core technology on to begin with was um on aws lambda and so AWS Lambda is a complete, like, I mean, I'll just be honest, it's a black box. Um, yeah. Nothing about how the actual system works. And I mean, for good reason, it's their IP, right? But yeah. um, nothing about, like, how the system is actually working behind the scenes is uh, is documented. Um, so you kind of have to intuit a lot of stuff and just kind of figure out how it's all working by trial and error. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, you can actually share state between requests as long, at least with Lambda, as long as it's very, um, you have been able to in the past, as long as it's a very quick turnaround um, between requests. It, the same container could be used. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if that works on, on Azure. So on the, the Azure functions, by the way, are, are quite a bit less of a black box because it uses the, uh, like the Kudu deployment engine, which is all open source. I think a lot of pieces of Azure functions is actually open source. Um, uh, there is some black box box ish stuff, um, that, that kind of wires everything together and does the scale. Uh, we might have to have another Azure functions episode, but I think, I think a lot of pieces of that are very well known, but I always just think of it as like, there's a giant supercomputer there running and I'm just telling it how to handle specific things. You know, like you said, stateless web requests and, uh, and I, that's what I work with. And then you handle everything else for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's interesting is about the way that um, some of these providers handle uh, requests, though, um, is what, what I think the opportunity, anyway, around serverless technology, really like function as a service technology is, um, is really heading towards the path of being able to establish like a really solid, because we've, we've gone from like SOAP and then everyone like hated SOAP. Uh, and then we went to REST and it's like, okay, this actually makes a lot more sense. Um, but I think there's actually the opportunity to start standardizing um, the way that we actually think about making these like functional, I mean, they're just remote procedure calls, right? Mm-hmm. So like making these functional requests over HTTP um, and even ways to consider, like just in the future, I'm, I'm not pitching anything now, but just in the future, thinking about like different stateless protocols um, that can use less overhead than HTTP that can just be for like functional requests hmm. um, and, and things like that. I, I mean, I think there's like a lot of opportunity in this space that a lot of people are like thinking around, um, yeah. but we haven't quite got there yet. I still think there needs to be some sort of, um, e- even in the fact that you can write these functions in different languages like Python, Node, etc. Uh, in Node, you have like a very specific um, or some providers give you access to a very specific um, like request and response object that is actually from like the node HTTP module, but you don't have that in like every language. And then node has asynchronicity. Yeah. And it's um, different and, on every language. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like, there's still no like standard API and like how to think about like how you're writing these functions. So I think that's going to, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in that space in the uh, yeah. in the coming years, and it's just going to get easier for developers overall. That's interesting. I was actually going to ask you about that because I <laughs> I do see that it's like I look at the Lambda syntax for creating a function, I look at the Azure Functions one, and then Standard Lib, and it's like they're all sort of similar, you know. But I would have to tweak some things, you know, here and there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I mean um, I'm happy to to talk kind of about what we're doing with Standard Lib in that regard. Um, yeah, cause yeah, you just mentioned there's like different syntax. So, I mean, the idea when we launched standard lib to begin with, um, I mean, the goal is uh, we're obviously, uh, standard lib SCDLIB is, uh, just a reference to like the, the C standard library, right? It's just an homage yeah. for like a new generation of web developers 
standardlib.com. Well, like we were talking about the eternal spring of new developers. Yeah. <laughs> that are, that are <laughs> I like that. In. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an homage, but I mean, the, the initial vision um, was really this serverless space, the microservices, the functions of service space. Um, it's really confusing um, to get started in development with. At the end of the day, developers... I mean, we, we do. We spend a lot of time like learning new tools, learning Kubernetes, whatever. But at the end of the day, the reason that most of us got into development is to accomplish a very specific task. And like what you'll see in development over and over and over again is like, here's the goal you want to get to. I'm going to start. And then you have all of this research and like knowledge acquisition period. And then by the time you actually get ready to actually like build the thing you want to set out, you've ended up like building a framework or like something else just <laughs> well, to get there. Right. Yep, yep. Um, so what we, yeah, what we started, yes, <laughs> more than I like to, I mean, that's probably yep. the reason standard live even exists in the first place, right? It's, um, trying to build an app and then yeah. wrangling serverless technology around. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the opportunity that we kind of saw was, um, how kind of disjointed this whole space is. And I mean, people will say, um, oh, hey, like, don't use microservices for everything. It's like, no, what you want to do is build with a monolith to begin with. Um, because you'll have like a framework, like you're going to build with Ruby on Rails or like shout out to my framework node or whatever, right? But like, you're, you're just going to start with something. It's like, this is going to get our app delivered in the shortest amount of time possible. And then once you have specific endpoints that are taking up like a high amount of compute, et cetera, you start offloading these into microservices and then you can slowly adopt like a, a microservice architecture as you grow and scale your application. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. Um, but the, the questions that we were asking is like, one, well, how do you manage all of those microservices? Two, um, can we reduce duplication of effort like across, like within an organization for transparency around their micro, the microservices they've already built, et cetera? Um, and three, like, does that have to be the way that, that people build? Like, are microservices so scary? Or is like the tooling and the organization layer just not enough in the like serverless and microservice space to have people comfortable. Um, so we kind of chose this abstraction layer of not the individual function, but mm -hmm. a group of functions, like a namespace, essentially, we just call them services, but like a namespace of functions, um, okay. which would be a service. And each one of those has like a functional endpoint, um, which is just like, like exporting a JavaScript function or whatever. Um, so you kind of get this neat little mix between like uh, and it, we handle HTTP routing and all of that stuff. We have a gateway layer. So what you get is this like neat little mix of that, the granularity of the function, but still organized in such a way that it's familiar um, to what a lot of people would experience with like building a, like a traditional monolith. Um, and, and so I think that's, we're trying to standardize around that. And um, also we're trying to standardize across languages. So right now you can only build functions for standard lib. Um, I mean, as a function as a service platform, you can only build the functions with Node.js um, with JavaScript. Uh, but the languages that you can access these functions from, we've actually built in SDKs in, uh, library, sorry, in, uh, on Ruby gems, mm -hmm. um, on the Python package index and on, um, NPM, just the lib package LIB that is a standardized interface, um, across like all three languages essentially that allows you to interface with any function on standard lib. So if you go tomorrow, you write a neat service that does something cool. Maybe you don't publish it like publicly, but you yeah. just want to use it in different applications. You don't even have to remember like the HTTP endpoints. You don't have to do whatever. You just require the lib package. You can do it in any language you want, like well, at least Python, Ruby, <laughs> and Node right now. Yeah. And then you could just do like um, so. For me, I have a DNA sequence alignment service that I use for demos and stuff, right? So in any Node app, 
anywhere. I can just use the lib package to do lib.keith.sequence. And it's going to call my service from standard lib and this whole dependency. And so we have this neat service composition story um, as well, right? Because yeah. you can also use this lib package within a standard lib service, call it to other standard lib services, et cetera. I, man, I never, yeah. I never, you know, it's funny. I've never thought of that, you know, cause I, I, I always imagine this future where, where we, where whatever problem we're trying to solve right now, we use the language that makes sense, you know? So like Python is great for like arrays and, and like data management. And this is, this is great because I could write, I mean, it sounds like what I could do and, and the support might not be fully there, but I'm just picturing this future now where I have one function that's written in JavaScript because I'm processing some JSON that's coming off the wire. And then I'm calling something over in C sharp that I want to, I want to have some, some great, like really structured code around. And I want to run some unit tests on that and have that full experience. And then I take that structured data and maybe I pass that over to Python in a dynamic format. And then Python does like it's array stuff to it. Um, I mean, it, it, having, having that um, uh, sort of that invisible transport that lets me go between these sort of gives me that future, doesn't it? Where I can mix and match those languages. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's actually what the, we're the, the most excited about is really this just like composition and like community aspect, That's right? Awesome. So I mean, I like ideally, like everyone's like, everyone right now is still writing their functions in JavaScript. We're going to be adding more language support. But yeah. because we have the SDKs in like Ruby, um, Python and Node, um, as we grow out our offering, it's really just going to be like somebody wrote a Ruby function, but it's a, like wrote a function in Ruby, but it's available on standard lib. Um, and I can use it from any language I want. Right. And it doesn't matter. I don't have to like learn the language. I don't have to like install some special. That's SDK. pretty cool. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So the, the service composition story is definitely something we're like really excited about. Aspose offers a powerful set of file management APIs with which developers can create applications, which can create, open, edit, and save the majority of popular business file formats. Their product range supports a multitude of file formats, including Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents, OneNote, Outlook, Project, Visio files, popular image formats, and many others. Aspose produces APIs for .NET, Java, and the cloud, which can be utilized in almost any modern language available today. Visit www.aspose.com for a free 30-day no-limitations trial. And if you get stuck, message the friendly support team for help. All technical support is offered free of charge. Remember, if you're a lucky winner, you will receive a free developer small business license for Aspose.Words for .NET, a powerful toolkit to work with Word documents in your applications. Yeah, I can sit here and say like, yes, um, our deployment is super easy. We, we have tools like uh, essentially we have our own uh, we have our own command line equivalent. To, I mean, it's not Git, it's not source control, um, but we have a command line tool, lib. You can just type like lib up dev. Um, and it's going to deploy your function as a service only takes like a second. So I can say like, yeah, this is really easy to use and whatnot. But what's really cool is the opportunities that this is going to open up in the future in, in terms of web development. Mm. So um, instead of, instead of pulling in that, at that, uh, that L trim uh, NPM package, I can now pass it to a function that will trim it for me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we, yeah, I think uh, I think left, yeah, left pad. I think um, or left pad. That was it. Yeah. Back back when we first launched the uh, the newest version of the platform, I think in yeah. like October, one of the first functions that somebody created was like a left pad function. As a joke. <laughs> I'm just gonna publish that. That'll be that'll be the new Azure. It'll be left pad as a service. Oh yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so um, I was kind of curious then hearing you talk talk about this. So how does this compare then? Is this like a competitor to the framework called serverless? 
Um, I wouldn't say we're competitive with the serverless framework. I mean, we have our own um, command line tooling that so there's that we all, use, some there's some overlap. Basic there is there, some overlap. There is overlap. I mean, okay. if the uh, I mean, as it's up to the serverless team what they want to do. They're a very talented group of people. I mean, they're working with. I, I mean, they just announced their their partnership with Microsoft and Azure Functions and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, they can certainly plug in to what we're doing. So if you want your um, I, I don't think they've announced any. <laughs> I, I think they're focused on the, the big fish right now, like uh, you guys over there, Microsoft. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any limitation on the integrations that can happen there. Like if you already use the serverless framework, it's like write functions. Um, we're just another provider, but we also have that, um, like the whole service composition story and library story. So if, if, if serverless framework is like really what you're the most comfortable using right now, um, we haven't built an integration with the serverless framework, but that's definitely entirely possible. Um, yeah. So I, I'd be hesitant to say we're, we're competitive with them. Um, but uh, yeah, we just have a, a different vision around, I mean, they're mostly focused on the deployment aspect. And we have a much different vision around like the, the future of, I mean, like I just said, service composition, like we were just chatting about, so... Yeah, now I, I understand your comment now about trying to get rid of HTTP out of the mix, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because if you if you can do whatever protocol is like hyper efficient to go from function to function, yeah. If you're able to use that, that starts to open up a whole new world of possibilities there. So if I'm using um, if I'm using this library and and something like that comes along, then I, I'm just sort of automatically enabled for that, then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Instead sure. of instead of using like HTTP client or something like that, which is really tying me to that specific protocol. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And so I think yeah. And as we as we grow out um, this whole concept of service composition, um, I think those. I mean, yeah. That's why I brought up the. I mean, I think that might have been surprising at first. Like, why do you want a different protocol? Um, yeah. But yeah. As you start growing out that that service composition layer, um, yeah, this does become something that all of a sudden becomes like really enticing and exciting. Um, so I don't know. Nobody's really begun work on that yet, but it's definitely like a future, like a potential future. Um, anyway, that that our team kind of sees down the road. Um, so, I mean, if anybody, even if anybody listening, uh, is kind of getting excited about this and like wants to reach out, um, I'm like happy to chat. My, my email inbox is always open. So maybe I can give it to you guys and you can put it on your website. So, yeah, I don't have any inside knowledge here, but I, I, I suspect like the Azure functions team, they have to be thinking about this, right? If I, <laughs> uh, just a shortcut for calling from function to function and then somehow deploying those together and improving that, that performance. I mean, that way I could chain together 10 different functions and really have it be, have the same performance as one, um, instead of having, you know, literally treating those things as separate units and they could, you know, they could be running on different machines or whatever, but, um, they, I, I'm sure that they're, they got to be thinking about that kind of thing. Oh, I mean, I think, yeah, I think all of the main um, function providers are kind of starting to think about this stuff, but, uh, so it, it's going to be exciting. I think there's, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation and development in a really short amount yeah. of time. So, um, like everything that you're seeing right now, even, I mean, um, I mean, there are buses in here in San Francisco that have like the word serverless on the side, like where are your serverless provide on the side of the buses, right? <laughs> so it's obviously, bus. it's obviously like the top of like the, the hype cycle yeah. right now. Um, so I think we're still going to see a come down from that where people start feeling like, wait a second, this yeah. wasn't right for my use case or whatever. <laughs> um, but eventually, like probably faster than we expect, like we're going to get a whole ton of innovation space. So. Any questions for you, Carl? I've been asking all of them. <laughs> no, I mean, but this is a little Slightly. bit more towards what you've been doing uh, more recently yeah. anyways. Yeah. So, you know, I was going to bring up, uh, you had mentioned that you were, uh, had also uh, worked on another project called Nodal, and we wanted to talk about that today too. So can you tell us what that is? Sure. Um, Nodal is a Rails-inspired um, API framework for Node.js. 
Um, basically, there was uh, when the bifurcation um, happened uh, between like Node and IOJS. Um, <laughs> seems like forever ago now, but it really wasn't that long ago. And then the and um, then the rejoin. Yeah, they, yeah. So there was the bifurcation, the rejoin. So the bifurcation happened, and IOJS started supporting um, all of the new. I mean, what does everyone call it now? Like ES twenty sixteen, ES twenty seventeen. At the time, it was just ES six. So um, IOJS supported all the ES six class syntax. Um, and I had been building so much stuff in Node for a while, and had been super like really disappointed um, that there was no like Rails equivalent. Um, because I mean, I love just being able to spin up an application really quickly with Ruby on Rails. Um, there are there were frameworks, but uh, the problem is is just without that abstraction layer. I mean, yes, it's only syntactic sugar, but without that abstraction layer around classes, um, it becomes really hard to create the kind of like uh, I mean, I guess really. Um, vernacular or like DSL that Rails has really created um, as a framework. And once we had that class syntax from IOJS when the, the fork happened, um, I capitalized on that right away and I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to build out something like in the image of Rails um, for Node.js that's going to be super easy. I ended up writing like my own ORM, never write an ORM. I think there are like <laughs> books, books that never write one, but we got it. It works. It's great now. It has like, even has like GraphQL support and other cool stuff. But um, and then it, the timing just ended up being really, really good. I made a bet on IOJS and like ES6 and like a, a merge eventually happening. And then the merge happened. And within, we already had like, we were using it in production at the, uh, um, at the company I was working at. I was the engineering lead at at the time. We were using it in production. So it was getting testing. Like um, we were just there at the right time. So I was able to like open source this stuff and release it maybe like a month, month and a half, uh, maybe a little bit longer, but maybe like two months after the IOJS, um, Node.js remerge. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when, when Node 4 really came out. Um, and then we had like the first Rails, like truly like Rails inspired Rails like framework um, in Node.js. And it just kind of like took off like a rocket ship. It was January of, uh, of 2016. Um, it made the front page of Hacker News um, everybody got really excited about it. Um, and that's what kind of set us off on, uh, I mean, the journey with, with where we got to with standard lib. Um, so, I mean, we were just happy that people were building APIs using, um, in this, cause we, we, uh, approach this from the perspective of like your API should be stateless. I know node can store state for you, but like, forget about it. Um, so that led really, really well into, uh, like the serverless ecosystem in terms of like one request, one response, stateless, don't worry about it. Um, it kind of kickstarted the whole journey. So, yeah, I see a lot of stuff in here. I mean, uh, yeah, you got the ORM in there that you mentioned: schedulers, middleware, controllers, models, routing, tasks, um, authorization. Yeah, um, yeah, it looks pretty well rounded. Um, I assume I assume I can run this anywhere. I can run it locally. I could run it in a cloud provider of, of choice. Then, yeah, yeah, you can. Um, I mean, we when we initially built it, it was. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's set up to really easily deploy to Heroku. To be honest. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can, but you can deploy it to literally any cloud provider. I mean, it's just a node server. Um, mm -hmm. It's just like a, a node daemon that runs in the in the background. Um, so you can literally run it anywhere. Um, it's uh, we're going to be releasing like it, so. So Nodal's been in this interesting like pre 1.0 like happens to a lot of software like pre 1.0 release. Um, and I haven't been publicizing anything we we've been doing with Nodal for probably like the last like five or six months. Okay. Um, but it's still being like actively maintained and updated. Like we actually run all, like not all, but a huge chunk of our like core APIs and infrastructure at standard lib um, on nodal. So, I mean, this is getting like heavy production use. Ah, testing. Okay. And there are tons of updates we've even made to the framework in the past, 
um, well, yeah, like the past like six months that we have not written documentation about and haven't publicized just because we've been like really heads down um, trying to get like a whole small team trying to get like a whole bunch of stuff done at once. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll be definitely preparing Nodal for like, uh, I would imagine the 1.0 release um, will probably be within the next few months here. Um, right. we're just, uh, the last support that we just recently added in like the newest release candidate is actually, um, SQL transaction support. Uh, so you can actually like, um, so for Postgres, you can begin SQL transactions, run everything in order and then roll them back if you need to. Cause that was one thing, like one feature, like everybody asked for and like we needed ourselves. So I just want to like, whenever you release open source, you want to make sure it's like the right abstraction layer. Like it makes sense to developers, et cetera. Um, so that's probably what the, uh, the 1.0 release will be focused around is the support for SQL transactions. So cool. Yeah. It looks very cool. Yeah. So, you know, th this next thing that I, I want to talk about, we don't have to spend too much time, but I was digging around on your GitHub page and you have a project that is pitched as a <laughs> bioinformatics library that provides DNA sequence manipulation and analysis. Oh, who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. Tell us about that. Cause that just sounds Pretty gosh darn interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, uh, my academic background, I mean, I've been, it's funny, like, just to throw back to the earlier part of the conversation, when everyone says VB6, Visual Basic 6, is their, like, most dreaded language. Um, I started programming in, like, Visual Basic 5 and Visual Basic 6, yep. so... <laughs> well, that's why like, everybody dreads it, because they know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, I'm, I'm a self-taught developer. I actually went to school for, uh, for biochemistry. Um, so that's what I studied academically, like, all throughout college. And... Um, being like a JavaScript fanatic, a guy who's like really into Node and JavaScript, um, I wanted to do like a lot of, sorry, like do bioinformatics work in, in Node.js. Um, and at the time, there wasn't a lot of, I mean, there was a lot of stuff in Python, because um, I think that's like a scientific developer's language of choice. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of stuff in Node. So the, the point of NTSeq to begin with was just basic like DNA sequence manipulation of like, okay, I'm going to read a string of nucleotides, which is just like the letters ATGC. Um, and then I can do things like, um, uh, sorry, like amino translation to amino acids. So like what is the amino acid chain that this open reading frame, like just like, like the genetic code, like what actual proteins does it encode, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, so that's how the library started out. And then I had this problem in, in grad school where basically um, I, I want to make sure I frame the problem correctly so I can, I can explain why we, uh, <laughs> why I ended up building this. Um, I essentially built an ungapped um, sequence alignment, super fast ungapped sequence alignment algorithm that just uses bit operations to really quickly compare um, two sets of sequences or like two sequences, right? Um, so we had this problem that I encountered um, whereby I had, there was a, a protein that I was looking for or a protein that we had identified that bound, like it binded in DNA, it actually attached to DNA to a very specific, well, to a DNA sequence that was about 20 nucleotides, so 20 letters long. Now, the, this sequence, it didn't have to be, like, it didn't have a very high specificity, so it could bind to different versions of the sequence. And I wanted to very quickly go through an entire genome, um, like, a, like, say, the E. coli genome, I think it's... Um, off the top of my head, I think it's six, six million base pairs. So I wanted to go through like the entire genome and say like, where could this protein possibly bind? Knowing that like at position like two, three, like out of these 20, out of these 20 letters that it might bind to, it might only need like 14 of them. So this becomes like a combinatorics problem, right? Because you can pick mm -hmm. like any 14 of these 20. So like the computation becomes massive there. So, um, 
I really just wanted a library that could just instantly just compare two sets of sequences. And you can do this really easily by just translating the sequences um, into binary and just doing um, bit ands and like bit ors. Um, so that's where, like, so I built an entire node library. I actually originally did this in Go because I was like, this has got to be as fast as possible. Node.js actually outperformed Go. Uh, <laughs> at doing like bare metal bit ops comparisons yeah. and like my justification, like looking at this, I was just like, what? Uh, but like my justification is that the V8 developers are, are much better um, at like optimizing my code in the just in time compiler than I am at writing highly optimized code in Go. Uh, <laughs> so that would be my explanation. But, uh, but yeah, it has Node.js performing at like bare metal um, speeds with bit ops, which is uh, pretty great. Um, and yeah, it's just for um, sequence comparison there. So you can say like, I'm looking for like ATGC in some chunk of like the human genome. Here are like all of the places it occurs. Here are all of the places where it matches three, like three out of these four letters, um, et cetera. And uh, we put that out and like, I actually get emails um, probably once every couple of weeks from uh, bioinformatics students, um, like all over the world who are, uh, who are playing with it um, and asking questions about like how to use the library. Uh, we actually just pushed out an update that I think broke some things for some people. So I've gotten a few more emails recently. Um, wow. But yeah, that's uh, it's kind of like the whole story behind that. So yeah, that's uh, that sounds great. I I understood some of those words. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what, one of my questions that I did have initially, and you kind of answered, is like, you know, could I swab my own cheek, you know, and and get the results back and kind of, you know, you know, do something with this? And I think, I mean, you answered it. You said you could compare an entire genome to. Yeah, to a to a specific sequence, and it, it includes. Um, I mean, it'll just. Show, I mean, it does sequence alignment, right? And so the whole concept mm -hmm. of, of sequence alignment is just make. So we finding, have finding like known. Alignment. There must yeah. be like known sequences then, and uh, and you're able to take. You know, like this is the sequence for I don't know feature X. <laughs> yeah, and you're able to to match that in in the strand then. Yeah. So this does. Um, yeah. I mean, essentially, um, so okay. this does what the, what's called. And so, like anybody that actually has like a bioinformatics background is going to roll their eyes at this point because, yeah. like, what this library does is called ungapped sequence alignment. Well, it which sounds kind of like, like pattern matching, right? Yeah. I mean, it is just pattern matching. It's yeah. from from that perspective, it's like relatively trivial. What's really interesting is gapped sequence alignment. So you start having penalties because like. I mean, DNA breaks that you have yeah. nucleotides. That's, that, and that's actually the biggest question. I have. Like it, yeah. it seems like it's a mess cause it's, it's not, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not like there's parody bits, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, or like a, like a checksum. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's a, what's, what's really interesting. I mean, I'd love for developers to look at the, the library. Um, I think with what we've built in terms of just like this, the raw speed, like the bare metal bit up speed, um, I mean, this was on Hacker News 2 a couple of years ago when we when we first launched it, um, or when I first built it and launched it. Um, but what's really interesting is just the speed of the ungapped alignment that we do. Mm -hmm. It's like literally theoretically the fastest that you can do this alignment because it, it's like bare metal, um, pure bit ops, like literally yeah. takes, uh, I think, for like the map, save, check, whatever, um, takes like seven processor cycles to store every result. So it's like literally theoretically <laughs> as fast as you can possibly make it. So that combined with somebody who might be coming into the space and being like, well, I want a gapped um, alignment algorithm, uh, but I want it to be really fast behind the scenes. Um, I, I think there are opportunities there to like build and extend upon what we've built. It's just like I've never actually like published this in a journal or anything like that. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's just it's free for anybody to look at the code and, and check out and play with if they want to. So. That's crazy. So what is your, what is like your time breakdown with these three? I mean, you have like three projects that, that 
I'm sure you could work on full time. So is this like a third of your time spent in each of these things? I mean, what does that look like? Um, I mean, like NTSeq as a library is like relatively mature. It's uh, mm-hmm. I update tests once in a while if like okay. finds an error. Um, so that's not a whole lot of maintenance. Now, Nodal, um, we use in production full time. So I mean, it's part yeah. of like um, what we're doing with the company. So, I mean, it's like half my, <laughs> whenever we need to update Nodal, like we need to update Nodal. It's like, <laughs> that's what happens. And with like standard lib, this is a, um, like fully venture backed endeavor. Um, so, I mean, this is what we spend the majority of our time on. Um, I have a lot of stuff on the go. Obviously I like rarely sleep. I actually do most <laughs> of, I actually do most of my coding, um, to, uh, to the, <laughs> I, I think my girlfriend kind of gets upset about it, but I do most of my coding between like probably like 10 p.m. Uh, and like 4 a.m. <laughs> as like silly as that is, because like during the day, I'm just like dealing with like maintenance issues, like talking yeah. to people. Um, I was going to say, then you don't have to worry about emails at those times either. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because like, ha- I mean, half the day, I mean, you guys know, like half your day ends up getting taken up by just responding to people's emails. So. I wish it was only half. <laughs> 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 I strive for half. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't, uh, at this point in my career, I don't have like a whole lot of free time, but I honestly, I, I couldn't be happier um, doing what we're doing right now and the amount of support we're getting from like the community, from other developers, um, from our early employees, like it's just been fantastic. Um, and I feel just, I feel just very fortunate to be able to be in this gym. So very cool. Yeah. I just feel like, um, I feel like we could, we could sit down and like have a drink and talk about, (laughs) talk about any of these projects quite a bit more. So, um, one question I did have going back to the, the first technology we talked about, the standard lib, um, it's it's built so it looks like it's built on AWS Lambda. Is it is it tied to that at all? I mean, can I use it with Azure Functions? Um, right now, uh, you can't use it with with Azure Functions. We are built wah, on the, wah, wah. yeah <laughs> uh, Microsoft Dev Show. Um, yeah, so we uh, we are talking about like so. What's most important to us really is the composition layer, right? Um, at the end of the day, like the whole point of serverless is like it shouldn't really matter where. And I mean. I think what we're going to see, I'm going to make this prediction. I mean, I think what we're going to see in this space generally is the margins on being able to charge for compute and stuff are going to rapidly approach zero. Um, so can you build a, a business? Like, is it valuable to just have a business built around like, hey, we do um, we do compute? No, you're not really ever going to be able to compute, com- sorry, to compete with Azure, <laughs> c- to compute, to compete with like Azure or, or, uh, yeah. or, or sorry, or AWS or Google Cloud. Um, so that's not really... Like we're more focused around the organizational and like maintainability layer than just like we're a compute offering. So we might have options in the future to be able to like oh plug into your AWS Lambda account, um, plug into your Azure account, plug into your Google Cloud Functions account. Um, it's just not something we're focused on right now. What we're what I'm really focused on anyway. At the end of the day, we just pushed out some material with Slack actually about how easy it is to like build a serverless ch- Slack bot on our platform. It take, takes nine minutes and you have a Slack bot and it's just working. Like what I'm more focused on is not. Like um, the oh my god! Like how? What's this new model of compute look like? Or whatever. At the end of the day, what I'm focusing focused on is building like developers building things and like getting real results and like being able to use these tools to build something valuable. Not just like a theoretical talk about like um, what does function as a service mean in general. Uh, I want to deliver results for people. So I mean, that's kind of what we're we're focused on. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Carl, do you have other questions? No, I'm good. Um, yeah. So, um, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to mention on any of these. I mean, we could probably have, we probably could have had a, a show on, on each of them, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know if there was anything that we, that we kind of went over too quickly that you wanted to dive into more, or you think that was a good high level Keith? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm super happy to, uh, to chat more about any of this stuff, like really at any time, even for like, if any of your listeners are like, Hey, I'm kind of interested in this. And I didn't really, um, uh, it kind of went really fast. I'm a fast talker too. So it kind of went fast. Um, and I'd like to learn more about this. I mean, like, I like yeah. that. Cause that, that, that combats <laughs> these people that speed up the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes. Mess with them. Yes. <laughs> oh, I totally did intentionally. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if anybody wants to chat about uh, any more of this stuff or if any of your listeners want to reach out directly, um, I mean, I think we covered, uh, I'm, I'm happy. Okay. The level yeah, I thought it was things, a great but... intro to all these technologies. I mean, I, I'm excited about them. I, in particular, <laughs> this uh, standard lib, I really want to look into this because, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, uh, um, you know, the future of, uh, um, I, was, I was about to say serverless, but we'll say, uh, was it functional? I like functions, functions as a service. I really like was that. Was it functions before. as a service? Yep. Okay. Functions as a service. Uh, FAS. Yeah. <laughs> I'm exactly. really fascinated by FAS. So. <laughs> you're really, you're really fascinated. Fascinated. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You got it. Okay. Very cool. Uh, Carl, what do we have for the app of the week? App of the week is a really cool one. If you're working with IOT hub, mm-hmm. uh, Microsoft has on GitHub, uh, an application called device Explorer, and it lets you, uh, configure your IOT hub, create devices, manage them, add keys, revoke keys, remove devices. It's pretty much does everything you need in that area. Um, so I highly recommend it if that's what you're working, uh, with. So it's basically now, my- a test client for the IOT hub SDK. Yeah, and if you look at any of the Azure documentation they uh, around IoT hubs, they all point back to this uh, device yeah. explorer, which is why it's also my dev tip of the week. It's on GitHub. Um, go look at this code. I mean, it, it's a great starting point if you need to make your own service, especially if you want to manage your own keys in a more automated fashion. Um, I recently uh, had to do this, and I look straight at that code, and it's pretty easy to repurpose. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't, I, I thought that was a mistake that you had it in there for both. No, days, it's so. not a mistake. And you, <laughs> you know, it's looking at these resources that Microsoft puts out there. Isn't just for us to use them straight out without thinking. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of us are going to need, uh, tools like this going forward, but it's not going to fit our exact scenario. So let's just take that code. It's out there. It's open source. It's MIT licensed and, um, you know, make it your own, you know, add the functionality you need to make it, uh, you know, really make your product shine. Okay, very cool. Uh, so, Keith, we play a game on this show. What I need you to do is uh, pick a number between one and four inclusive and let me know what the number is. Uh, okay, but I got I to tell you the number. Yes. Okay, um, <laughs> let's, let's go with four. Four, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> this, is, oh, no. this is a kid's yes. game. And some of these questions are really bad. Okay. Okay, would you... <laughs> I'm I'm almost inclined to pick a different one. <laughs> uh, would you, Would you rather eat a handful of human boogers or drink a cu- a cup of monkey spit? <laughs> um, this is like the worst question we've had. A handful of human boogers was the yeah. first one, or and monkey spit? I'm, and I don't I'm, know. If- I'm sure as a child I ate more than a, a handful of my own boogers, so I'll go with. Well, it doesn't uh, say your own though. I mean, this could be like <laughs> one from like multiple people. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I'll put uh, I'll put some faith in my immune system either way, but uh, maybe yeah, maybe okay. go with one. Maybe go with the boogers. Okay, that probably take <laughs> long. I don't know. Okay, that one is that's a retired question that will never be spoken <laughs> again. Okay, Carl, pick a number. I'll take number three. <laughs> Key's never coming back. Uh, would you rather see this? See, this is the kind of question that that we normally have. Would you rather have it rain caterpillars for one day or have it rain feathers every day for a month? Feathers every day for a month. 
I mean, you got to, I mean, if you're, if it's raining caterpillars, you're going to step on them. Uh, sure. But if it's one day, I mean, like, I don't know, you just stay inside and then the caterpillars sort of yeah, go but away they're gonna, and like, then you have butterflies, but they turn into butterflies. <laughs> I, I'm going with feathers. Well, I'm going with caterpillars. I think you're wrong on this one. <laughs> Cause fe- I mean, they're going to be around. The feathers are going to stay there for months. I mean, we're talking like probably a foot of feathers. I mean, they take up a lot of room. They're going to blow away just like the snow. Yeah. Yeah. Keith's video just disappeared. I don't know if he's still there. Yeah, he was sick of this question. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, I'm not putting up this. Are you still there, Keith? All right. Let's finish without him. Okay. Uh, well, you can find him. Let's see. Where can you find him? He's on Twitter at uh, Keith. So it's, uh, let's see here. His Twitter is Keith, K-E-I-T-H-W-H-O-R. So Keith Horwood. Uh, you can find him there. That's where I would go. Or at... Uh, um, K E I T H W H O R.com is where you can find him as well. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer and you can find me at whyteggy.com or at Twitter and, uh, twitter.com slash whyteggy. Keith, are you back? Okay. Well, goodbye, Keith. It was super fun having you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry that we made you leave. <laughs>